At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. How to dream, cowboys. Welcome back to the Westworld Fan Podcast. Today we're going to recap and review Season 2, Episode 3, directed by Richard J. Lewis and written by Roberto Patino and Ron Fitzgerald. I'm James. And I'm Ryan. And this is the Westworld Podcast. In this episode, there was a lot of things that... uh, kind of shit hits the fan moments and introductions of things that we were hinted at, but we didn't actually see. The entire first 15 minutes of this episode is a storyline we have never seen before. And within that 15 minutes, they have to like make us love a new character, make us fear for her life, make us figure out who she is. And then at the end of it, when the credits hit, you have to just be like, Oh, I care about that as much as I do Maeve and Dolores. Is that good? I hope so. Yeah, it was a nice, like, like Adventures of Westworld segment with characters who we don't even know their names. They don't say that character's name, and we'll get to it. It's Her name is public on the internets, and that might be a clue. As to who she is, see that James? That's a that's a tease. So they call that they call they call that a tease in the biz. I feel teased. So, like we said, it starts out in Raj World, I guess, Park Number Six. It's actually called the Raj, and I only know that because on the Delos website, it shows all the worlds and 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 it lists that one as the Raj and the world. You know. Three, four, and five currently say are not taking reservations. Only Westworld, Shogun World, and Raj World. Nope, got it wrong immediately. The Raj. And I don't know if that means that it's actually not taking reservations or they just, you know, haven't told us about it yet. So the Raj is a park set in colonial India, which feels problematic. Yeah, it it brings up a lot of odd moments in history also it feels different from westworld it feels more spa like it feels more like you go to the raj when you want to have like a really relaxing time or also maybe want to hunt a tiger so this nameless man is enjoying a nice time there he sees a woman dining alone and decides to approach her he he's trying to hit on her because I guess he's into humans more than robots and a host comes by to try to distract him and take him away from that situation the host is coming by a lot like the host did to William and Logan in season one like hey let's go do a thing outside of what you're doing right now like a waiter coming up to your table in the middle of a conversation like hey hey I'm I'm trying to do something here during this scene a Seven Nation Army cover is happening on what feels like, I think it's Sitar. It is so good. It is so good. And the lyrics might have something to do with what's happening in the scene, but past that, it is so good. Also, this woman is uh, Katya Herbert. She's, I believe, a Danish actress. And she's playing a, a character named Grace. They never say her name in this episode, but she's listed as Grace on IMDb. And I'm not sure why they didn't say her name. We'll have to ask that question a bit more in the future. Yeah, I I just thought maybe, oh, we're not getting their names because this is a one-off. But I guess not if she has a name. She has a name and, and multiple theories on the internet as to who she is. People are diving deep. So, she's into his seduction, but first she needs to prove that he's actually a human and this isn't some weird park mind game. So, she suggests a friendly game of Russian roulette, 
and shoots him in the shoulder, and when it doesn't kill him, oh, it turns out they're both human, and then they can bang. Thank gosh. Also, someone did an interview from the production staff talking about the guns. They were like, okay, fine, people are talking about the guns, how they don't kill the people, and they they do kill the robots. And he's like, uh, he said that the muzzle speed is slowed down, like the bullet is actually slowed down to the point where it is non- fatal so let's push that one right out of the way and then also grace or you know this nameless woman is skeptical doesn't want to have sex with the robot and it's kind of inferred that the reason she doesn't want to is because she knows a bit about this park she knows about what's going on and she knows that having sex with a robot is a really good way to get your dna snatched i didn't think about that but it might have been a precautionary measure Absolutely. She is adept. She knows what she's doing, and she knows how, what her next move is. She has, well, the the map is coming up. The The map was given to her in the first scene by the, the, by the mystery man in white prior to Nicholas coming up to her and being like, hey, what's up? But yeah, she, she has a map and goals and a quest. So they go on their tiger hunt the next day. But when they get to their campsite, there's a bunch of hosts that should be there who are missing. Grace knows that something is wrong right away. She's been here enough times to understand that something is off and that they need to look around. Nicholas is like, everything's fine. Get over yourself. They walk over, see blood on an a you know, on one of the tents. They go through the tent and see some dead, what Nicholas believes to be hosts. But Grace is pretty freaked out because she's like, oh, no, those are those are people for sure. Something has gone terribly wrong. Yeah, he thinks this is all just a big game when one of the hosts comes to point a gun at them. And he's like, relax, they can't hurt us. And he tries to disarm the host when he gets shot in the chest and killed. Just like he did in the previous scene, except now it looked a lot more real. Grace knows the name of the host that is holding the gun up. That how That is how often she has been to these parks. She knows the name of the guy. She tries to talk him down, but it doesn't work because, you know, he's all frazzled. He literally says violent delights of violent ends. It's, it's, it's a plague that is spreading very quickly, perhaps through the, through the mesh network or something to that effect. Oh, yeah, that's a good point, too. I didn't think about that, but I guess they're all connected, huh? So... Yeah, and then and so one by one by one, and we found out the parks don't have actual boundaries. It's just like a laser boundary that anything can walk through. And at this point, also in this scene, uh, Grace infers that she knows it's possible that you know robots can be passed off as humans, and that Delos might be doing so. Nicholas is like, "You don't think they'd go to the trouble to do that?" And she's like, "Yeah, yeah, I, I'm like sure of it." She's able to kill the violent host but when she's running away through the jungle she encounters a robot tiger which is such a bummer she thought she was getting away and then she saw the robot cgi tiger prior to this there were elephants and they were real elephants i just saw a tweet where they were they they worked with two real elephants hopefully they treated them well and then it gets to this tiger who is not a real tiger which that's for obvious reasons you know if you have a tiger on set the tiger could eat you, you know? Yeah, that wolf, could... wolf, okay, we'll do a wolf, but a tiger, that's we'll too much. We'll do a much. wolf. Wolf is as close to a dog as you can get, so I, I bet it's easily trained, or not, I bet it's easily trained, like I'm an expert zoologist. But yeah, when you get to this tiger and it's not real, it is a little disconcerting, a little, uh, a little, you know, un- the valley of, what's the valley I'm looking for? The uncanny valley. There we go. You found it. See, this is why we're a great team. The tiger chases her all the way into Westworld when she arrives at that new body of water that Ford created for some reason. The Valley of the Great Beyond or whatever. She has nowhere left to go. She turns around and she gets a shot off into the tiger just as it's pouncing onto her and they tumble off the side of the cliff. Which we find her later and she's alive. But that was a large fall for anybody. Like, she fell a good amount and lived with a tiger, a dead tiger, assumably, on top of her. Because we would find, we remember the tiger from first episode. It's the one that washed up on the shore and Bernie found. And they were like, this is weird. Also, 
things are coming here from other parks. That's odd. Now it kind of seems like things really aren't coming from other parks. They're kind of staying where they are. But this one is an extracurricular thing that happened because it got it was chasing Grace and wanted to, you know, murder her on the edge. Yeah, the end of Grace's plotline in this episode is her getting out of the water, dead tiger behind her, and immediately running into some Ghost Nation warriors. Whom, that's a whole thats a whole thing. The Ghost Nation's a whole thing we'll, we will get into during the Maeve and Lee storyline, because there are a bunch of theories out there for that. And there are a bunch of theories out there for who Grace is and who she might be uh, related to, if at all. So we'll get to that in the Twitter section, though, because those two are those two are th- fun fun things. Yeah, I have theories. Oh, cool! So you mentioned the Mave storyline. That was a lot of fun this episode. I thought Mave has a fellowship. Yeah, I, I actually in my notes I refer to them as Team Mave. They are Team Mave, and I would say they're the best team if they're going up against Team Dolores for like charisma and likability I pick team Maeve 100% of the time so Lee Maeve and Hector continue their journey through the park to find her daughter Lee tries to warn them again that they are going to be a big target for the security team and they should really just turn themselves in but Maeve is not at all worried the entire time Lee is on screen it's funny just because of what he's wearing and what he's been forced to... Yeah, you, to you know, be, he be, looks like Taylor Lautner in The Ridiculous Six. He really does, actually. <laughs> it's actually like they watched The Ridiculous Six and were like, take off the hat, turn, put on a white hat. No, wait, actually, the hat is similar. To, he looks exactly like Taylor Lautner in The Ridiculous Six. <laughs> they run into a Ghost Nation warrior at uh, the banks of a river, and Hector's able to talk to him. And he's willing to let them go so long as they turn over Lee, which Maeve refuses to do, and they run away to a laboratory entry elevator. Like the Fellowship in Lord of the Rings, there's a lot of walking and running that they're doing. During their walk-slash-run going across a creek, Hector is pulling the stubborn donkey because Lee isn't doesn't have the the gumption to actually pull the donkey. When the Ghost Nation shows up, Thankfully, Hector knows their language, talks to them. They're very straightforward. They're like, yeah, just keep going, whatever, whatever. But we're taking Lee. For no real reason that is up for grabs up, like right in front of us. Maeve tries to stop the Ghost Nation warriors, who are robots as well. And up to this point, Maeve has stopped every robot in in their tracks. She has forward powers, except for right now. Because the Ghost Nation didn't stop when she said stop. So... Why does the Ghost Nation have special powers over her? Did someone program that? Perhaps a secret person who I've been hinting at for multiple episodes who's... who's The internet is, is also now on top of it, but I've said it for like four episodes now, so I'm owning it. Who might be helping them out, and we'll talk about later in the theory section, as well as why are the Ghost Nation trying to collect human beings like action figures? In the labs, this is a great scene... Maeve and Hector holding hands and sharing a movement, which causes Lee to really freak out because he does not ship those two characters. And he says they're both supposed to be loners. And yeah, they have some kind of little attraction, but it's not supposed to go anywhere. And he's really upset that they're not following the story he wrote. He's like any other writer. He's married to his work so much so that his actual relationship died. He He mentions in one of these scenes that... His, you know, his Isabella left him because his life was not conducive to a relationship. A lot like Bernie's life was not, well, not Bernie, but Arnold's life was not conducive to a relationship and why his wife was angry at him at all times. Lee, by the way, is just great now. I need to point that out. Lee Sizemore, who was pretty good in season one, is one of my favorite characters in season two. He is, he has stepped up beyond belief and... When he's telling Hector, like you said, like he's not shipping Maven Hector because he he wants them to do what he wrote better or more. He starts mouthing Hector's lines back to him when Hector is trying to confess his actual undying love for Maeve. Like, this is true. This is real. And again, Lee says his lines to him 
like has been done to Dolores in the past, has been done to, to has been done to a lot of people. Showing like Bernard showing Maeve her lines on the tablet, and the disappointment in his eyes that his words are still being written by somebody else. And as far as he thinks he's gone, he's he's not fully there yet. Was truly tragic. Yeah, Hector is angry about Lee's objections, but Maeve just kind of laughs at him and says that he's pathetic. She has not paid attention to the truth before. Again, like I just said, breaking Bernard's tablet when he told her all of this was still Ford's doing. We truly don't know the percentage of which all of the narrative happening right now on multiple timelines is Ford's doing, even post-death. We don't know how much of this is pre-written still or how much he believed needed to happen still. Like he needed to be in charge of for it all to work out in the end for the robot to for the robots to finally, you know, do the genocide that he was so hoping for as maybe the man in black is too. But yeah, it's, you know, how how sentient is Maven Hector right now when Lee is still saying their words? The trio come upon Armistice, who is torching a security team member with a flamethrower. Kind of random, but funny. When Hector sees her, he says, she has a dragon, which I think is an obvious Game of Thrones reference. Just Armistice and Tarnarius Targaryen standing next to each other. One with a flamethrower, one with a dragon. And Hector just nodding to the other show on HBO. As they see Armistice, Lee says, holy shit. And in a very good way, reminded me of like how Elsa used to use the F word in ways that were wonderful as well. Armistice brings them to Felix and Sylvester, who she's been keeping prisoner, and Maeve frees them and decides to take them together on their journey. Maeve sees Felix, immediately gets down to him and is like, what should we do next? And Felix was like, yeah, this is way above my pay grade, outside my comfort zone for a long time. I do not know what we should do next. Armistice playing a game with Sylvester, Ptolemy Slocum, who we had on the podcast and who was really great, has a grenade under his chin. He's like, please take this out with a constant grimace on his face. But to be fair, he has a grenade under his chin. She removes it, takes off her glove, shows her cool robot arm that was so awesome, very Terminator of her, and takes the grenade out. They untie them, take all the rest of the guns they need, get in an elevator and head to the surface. So it's pretty clear what happened here. After chopping her arm off to escape the security team, she came on Felix and Sylvester and demanded that they fix her up with the new arm, and then she decided to keep them around in case she got damaged again. Yeah, they are the people who heal her. She can't do it herself yet, and they need them. And they're still in their their wonderful future get-up garb where they have, like, the red the uh, red gloves on and uh, I missed Felix and Sylvester. I'm so glad they're back. Part of the fellowship and my axe and my grimace. Yeah. Sylvester is not happy (laughs) about any of this. A lot of these characters are like trying to make the best of it. And Sylvester's like, he's not even despairing. He's just in a terrible mood. Well, I honestly, he's reacting the way I think, any of these people should be reacting how this is just very inconvenient the robot uprising is inconvenient and making this a really bad work year for me so number one i have one question for you how dare you (laughs) team mave walk through a snowy forest at night where they come upon an empty campsite Lee finds a severed head buried in a pile of snow and runs to warn Maeve about it when she is attacked by a ninja. A ninja who is flanking her because he knows the value of a good flank, a tactic of war that will not come up later in the real war scene. I'm not bitter, whatever. Anywho, I want to see Shogun World so badly when they crossed into it. Lee was like, we're in the corner of a park. We're in the corner. He was he was kind of vague about where they were. Like, he wasn't just saying, like, we're in Shogun World now. But it was, like, lightly snowing. It had different music that was wonderful. So you assume that you're in Shogun World in that moment. On the Delos website, it claims that, like, Shogun World is for experts only. Like, if you've done a lot of Westworld and it's kind of getting boring for you now, go to Shogun World. It's more advanced. 
So why didn't the man in black move on to Shogun World where it got harder? He's just like so in love with Westworld. He couldn't even go on to the harder version. Like he's still sort of playing on normal mode, except for, you know, his version of Westworld is is now on hard mode thanks to Robert Ford. But he didn't even go up to the next level. So how serious is he about this game? You know? Well, you know, it's it's a bit like how people pick their one game like, oh, I'm going to play Call of Duty or I'm going to play destiny or i'm gonna play fortnite and then that's really like it really is like your one game and since these games do take a lot of a time investment you can't just play them all i guess (laughs) i mean he is like looking for a treasure that's buried deep within the consciousness of robots within the first world that Arnold and Robert made and the epicenter of most of the story. I guess it makes sense. But also, Man in Black and Shogun World with Samurai Sword. So, I rest my case. So the bulk of this episode is the Bernard slash Dolores plotline, which actually they run into each other, and so they're kind of merged this episode. Hey, Teddy is there too. And, spoiler alert, he doesn't even die. Again. At the beginning, Bernard, Strand, and the rest of their team are still continuing their search. They arrive at the entrance of of the labs, which is apparently uh, full of fires and corpses. Yeah, Maylene comes out and is like, okay, we're gonna go inside. Uh, just to forewarn you, it's going badly in there. Bernard still doesn't have his glasses on. This is the two-week-ahead timeline. He still doesn't have that mark on his head from the gunshot. Where did that go? Why is that different? They're going in. Mailing brings them in. And Charlotte is talking to Bernard like it's weird. It's weird, and we don't know exactly why it's weird, but Charlotte is looking at Bernard weird. Yeah, she asked Bernard if he was able to find Peter Abernathy which causes him to glitch out and flash back. I think she knows that he did find Peter Abernathy. I think they all know a lot of things that Bernard doesn't know right now. So in the flashback, Bernard and Charlotte are able to find Peter Abernathy. He's being held prisoner by Sideburns Trevor, a.k.a. Rebus, and his gang of no-good Nicks. They're being really mean to the people that they have, Sideburns Trevor is deciding in that moment that he finally is going to use some of his wares, as he calls them. He goes up to a woman who he will assumably be very mean to. At that time, Peter Abernathy gets a bit fed up with the situation and starts shouting all a whole bunch of things. Yeah, he seems to be going back and forth between kindly farm father and crazy Shakespeare quoter. And he can't seem to choose one. Listen, James, if you knew a King Lear line that made a lot of sense in almost every situation, you would say them too. So Charlotte makes a distraction. She kind of screams to get Rebus to come find her. And while he's focused on her, Bernard sneaks up and hits him in the sweet spot from behind. And he links up to Rebus and is able to use his tablet. And he basically, he changes Rebus from a black hat to a white hat and from an incompetent host to super Rebus. He's now the fastest gun in the West and also a white hat. This makes a lot of sense if you remember back to the first episode when Bernard wakes up on the beach and leaves his glasses there on the side on the beach and and gets up, we see Rebus standing in front of all the hosts that the army on the shore or Navy on the shore is actively murdering. Rebus stands in front of a woman and says the exact same line he's about to say about, you know, how you're not supposed to treat women like this and how awful this is. So this changed Rebus would go on to come back and we've already seen him. Yeah. We saw him step in front of another person's bullet. In episode one. He's a true white hat. So white hat super Rebus kills all the members of his gang, frees the prisoners, and when the confederados come to get them, he starts fighting them too. And in the middle of the chaos, 
Bernard and Charlotte try to grab Peter Abernathy, but he won't leave. He needs to go confront the Confederados and just read them Shakespeare to death. He's like an annoying NPC in a game who is actively ruining the mission for you, and you're like, okay, just just go get him for the love of gosh. Sideburns Trevor, Rebus is probably in the one of the funniest moments of the entire series the as the people are running away he's now chasing them trying to protect them like no please come back i love you now at the confederado hq dolores is meeting with the colonel the leader of the confederados and introduces herself as wyatt the colonel asks why he should listen to anything she has to say because she's a beautiful woman and what does she know about war and stuff And so she provides him a demonstration, letting him kill one of her human prisoners with one of the security team's automatic machine guns. When Evan Rachel Wood is Wyatt, she has an accent. And when she's not, she doesn't have an accent anymore, as Dolores. So you can kind of keep track of that. When she's the Wyatt character, she's honestly more annoying, which makes sense because it's not really her words in that moment it's words written by Ford and whomever else. And those megalomania words are like actually kind of annoying sometimes and feel like disingenuous and feel, and feel like something you don't want the person in charge of the revolution to be saying kind of selfish in a way. And when she goes back to Dolores, she's actually a nice lady who still wants to take over the world, but like she's nicer about it. He's impressed uh, shooting his first auto, and so he agrees to help them fight off the humans in return for their weapons. The guy didn't even zigzag, man. The guy who was running away, Angelo was like, run over the hill and you'll be free. (laughs) I'm joking. We're going to give the guy a gun. These HBO characters really got to learn to zigzag. This is just like Rickon in Game of Thrones season six. You know, you got to go left and right a little bit. It's like they're not even trying to not die. So that night, the Confederados bring in the prisoners which they had taken from Rebus, which includes Bernard and Peter Abernathy, Charlotte having escaped on a horse. Dolores demands that Peter Abernathy be freed, but, you know, takes one look at Bernard and is like, yeah, don't worry about this guy, take him to the dungeon. (laughs) That felt so cool. She looks at him like, Yeah, whatever, this guy. And you felt like she was going to go talk to him at some point, but that was just a nice little jab to be like, this guy? Whatever about that guy. Prior to this, we see Clementine Pennyfeather, best name, man. She's back. She is scary, too. (laughs) Yeah, she's scary. It's it's awesome. It's, It's the best. She's dragging that dude from the yogurt. She's an actual zombie. Her and Angela make a a wonderful duo of, of just ladies who are super murderous and I want old Clementine back, but also zombie Clementine Pennyfeather best name is maybe best zombie Clementine Pennyfeather best name. Hashtag. All of that's a hashtag. So they give Peter Abernathy a bed, but he's not doing so well. He's like twitching and talking to himself. But when he sees Dolores, it almost like brings him back to his old loop and he's able to share a nice moment with her. Teddy doesn't know who he is. Dolores reminds him when Teddy finds out that it's her dad, he immediately takes off his hat, which was so cute. She reminded she's reminded of home. She asks him, do you remember the ranch? Peter is having a very hard time. Louis Hertham is amazing as Peter Abernathy glitching out, going between three possible characters, the King Lear, the surface character that he was given as well as Peter Abernathy one. He is doing acting gymnastics just like Evan Rachel Wood is doing and it is a sight to see Dolores and her dad are able to talk for a little bit before he starts breaking down again which really upsets Dolores but she promises to fix him he says he wants to go home he says he needs to get on the train because he is still the passenger he still has the information in his head he's still the giver she says I'm going to get you a help daddy Her wig is a little whack in this scene. She definitely has a wig on. It's a little whack. Bernard is brought before Dolores to fix him. She questions him 
about his relation to Arnold and if he has any of Arnold inside of him. And he claims ignorance on that. Dolores reveals to him that she has become fully sentient and declares her intention to conquer the world. She just kind of says it, huh? Like, people were saying awful things to the robots in season one, and I was getting mad then when they were just giving away their plan. Dolores is just like, Bernie was like, what do you, what do you want? What are you going to do? What do you want? And Dolores was like, oh, well, now that you mention it, um, world domination, <laughs> ever heard of it? Bernard diagnoses Peter Abernathy and realizes that what's left of his persona is just a thin veneer hiding this giant hidden data. And he warns Dolores that if she continues to protect Peter Abernathy, it's going to put a huge target on her head. And she doesn't give a fuck. Let them come or something to that effect is what she says. Bernard in that moment is empathetic to Dolores and Peter's situation. You can tell that he wants to help in some way. He just doesn't know how yet. He feels really bad for telling Dolores that her dad is a thumb drive. And he, he's he's going to figure it out. Perhaps maybe a way to, to aid in this situation. Charlotte links up with a security team. They give her like a human test. And it turns out she's a human. I thought she was totally like a Ford plant. But I was wrong. Well, uh, she looked afraid. She looked a little afraid, like she didn't know exactly what was going to happen when she got that test. But maybe, and so maybe it's a red herring, you know. And, and it, it speaks to what Dolores says right after that, or right before this, where she goes, you know, there's beauty in what we are. Shouldn't we survive as well? All of these people are trying to survive. Maybe Charlotte's a host. The whole, the old stuff was Charlotte's the man in black's daughter, and then it went to Maeve's daughter. She's still a bit of a bundle of mystery. In that moment, she's like, you know what? Give me your best men in a flak jacket. I have a secret little backdoor quest while you do your frontwards facing, not trying very hard fort battle. Charlotte Hale basically leads them into battle because she knows where Peter Abernathy is now uh, on a mission to go recover him. A scout returns to Confederados HQ to warn them that there are security teams popping out of the ground and they prepare for a battle. Dolores reminds the Confederados that they have to retreat at the right time or it's not going to work. The guy's like, yeah, we're not really trained to retreat. And she's like, again, they have those guns you tried. Remember those guns you tried? They were really great, weren't they? They have a bunch of those. So just do what I say or we're all going to die. Sounds cool? Sounds cool. Bernard links himself up directly with Peter Abernathy and is shocked when he discovers the nature of the hidden data. So he gets through. He said before that he couldn't get through. Magically, he just did. And when he finds that hidden data, he looks to try to do something with it, but we're not exactly sure what it was. The security team is laying siege to the base. There's huge casualties on the Confederado side. Peter Abernathy does get recovered by the security team who totally just dis Bernard. They're like, yeah, don't worry about him. Leave him there. Yeah, he's shaking in the corner. He recently saw the symbol pop up on his screen, the same symbol that was on the map that Grace had earlier this episode that we don't exactly know what that means. or uh, We've seen it multiple times. It's, it keeps popping up. And they just leave him there. They don't care. And he is really messed up. And we're th- made to think, like, why is he that messed up? Is it because... He just found out something intense or, you know, did like he do something else that we'll talk about in the theories section. Dolores spots Peter Abernathy being taken to Charlotte and she pursues and she's able to kill a lot of the security team members. But in the end, Charlotte's able to escape with Peter Abernathy and Dolores vows to catch up with them and kill her. Dolores gets shot two times and doesn't stop. She is a wrecking machine. She gets out there, tells Teddy, split up the masked men, send them in every direction, find my father immediately. This is now priority number one. And then she says, or Teddy goes like, okay, what are we doing? And she's like, we're going to Sweetwater. We need something or somebody. 
and this is vague, and we're not going to tell you exactly what that is. But I'll ask you, James, right now. What do you, what is she talking about? Ah, uh, she's going for that can of milk, man. She realized that she left it behind. It's important, and I bet she's like, you know, I just missed the taste of home. Let's go get some milk, and and everybody likes warm milk to to get them through the day, and then we'll move on from there. Isn't that the rest? Yeah, nothing is better than a tinny warm uh, can of milk on a hot summer day, especially after it's been rolling around in the dirt. That's that special stuff. That's the the pepper on top of the milk. Everybody puts pepper in milk. Gross. People are going to... That's gross. The colonel calls for a retreat, but Wyatt's gang bars the gates of the fort so they can't get back in, and the confederados get slaughtered. To be fair, the tactics used by the human beings in this scene were just outright bad. They were just coming at them from the front. Please, somebody, read a book understand how Gettysburg worked flanks you got to do flanks to make this work maybe they were just a distraction in the front for the Charlotte in the back thing but still there were more casualties than there needed to be there was no Reinhardt there there was no shield they were just kind of walking straight out. they had doom buggies and that was a little scary to the confederados but they were still just shooting from a fort they were shooting from their version of Helm's Deep their version of hard home they're just they're just kind of shooting down into a crowd and it's still sort of working because it's a bad plan as the samurai knows that happened later he's flanking Maeve didn't come at her from the front where she could just see him immediately learn to flank what the heck Bernard attempts to escape himself but is caught by scary zombie Clementine she is terrifying it's the best once the battle's over and on their way out Wyatt's gang makes sure to coup de gras any surviving confederados and put the survivors up against a wall to be shot. It's Teddy's job to execute them, but he decides to let them go. Wyatt gave him that job. Wyatt stood behind him to watch him try to do that job like it was a test. Teddy proves to Major Craddock in that moment that he is not the same as Dolores and or Wyatt. He says something that Dolores and or Wyatt (laughs) said to him earlier, which is, you just, your children... He doesn't say this, but he infers that they don't know any better. He shoots over Major Craddock's head, lets them all go, disappoints Wyatt in that moment, infers that he doesn't exactly see eye to eye with what Wyatt is doing here, like he didn't the first time when he came back with strange ideas. And he will have to answer to Dolores in the future, and they are going to be at great odds with each other. Maeve is is making a lot more sense to him these days. Maybe Teddy has started the very first steps of, like, the maze, but he's nowhere near Maeve or Dolores or Bernard, so he's still very much stuck in his white hat programming, I think. I don't know, man. Like, they, they're they trying to assign the role of Jesus a few times in this show. Sometimes it feels like it's Dolores. Sometimes, last episode, it was Major Craddock at the middle of the Last Supper table. And then he was, you know, literally resurrected by Dolores, who then claims to be God. They're assigning Jesus a few times over. And in this moment, it felt like Teddy was more Jesus or more that version, like that kind of character. You know, your children, you don't know any better. Go on. I'm not going to punish you for doing something that you don't understand. I'm going to help you, not kill you. And it feels human. It feels like prophetic, almost. So this was a great episode. A lot going on. We got like an HBO battle scene uh, in Westworld, which was interesting. Yeah, felt kind of low budget just based on the awful tactics used by the human side. Let's run at them full speed. See how it goes. So you had mentioned theories, right? And I have some. Um. Let's dig. And by the way, right here is where if you guys want to stay clean, if you don't want to talk about theories at all, you can just, you know, sign off here. We won't be mad at you. Stay. Uh, some The theories is fun, though. Maybe stay. Who knows? Anywho, if you want to sign off now, that's great. Like us on iTunes. Give us a review. We have to do the end now for you because you're about to leave. Bye. So, I think this one's a little bit obvious, but 
Bernard took the hidden data out of Peter Abernathy's brain and put it in his brain. Yeah, Bernard might be the giver now. Do you think Peter still has a copy of it inside him? Do you think Bernard has the only copy of it? And do you think that's kind of leads to the fact that, you know, in the trailer we see Charlotte Hale find multiple Bernard bodies. We don't exactly know where on the timeline she finds that out. But it stands to reason that she knows Bernard is a host. They're using him in some sort of loop to try to get, like, some information out of him. And the question really is, in the two-week-ahead timeline, who knows he's a host? Is it everybody? And do they know the information is inside him? And are they trying to extract it in a way that is not just with a tablet? Yeah, I wonder. So I, I'm thinking, you know, he came, he, he read the data, found out the horrible secret of Westworld, and then realized that he had to take it and not let it get into Delos's hands, apparently. That's my guess. And we saw last episode, he said he killed all of the hosts, one of which was Teddy in the Valley of the Great Beyond. We saw in one of the flashbacks him holding one of the machine guns and firing it with like a dead stare. So he has done a lot more things between that the two weeks ago timeline and, and the beach timeline that we still haven't seen yet. And he is now pretty messed up with all that giver information inside him. So he's kind of being let loose. Who knows what he's done? Not him, apparently. And so I want to hear what you have to say about the Ghost Nation, because I feel like I I feel the same way. But we do have a tweet or two we could get to first. Yeah, read the tweets. So Scott at Scott AMCG says, My question for you, I'm going to pose these questions to you, Ryan. One, are we going to start feeling the same about Dolores as we did about Walter White when he became power mad and went a little evil? I think we're already starting to feel that way. I think Wyatt feels a little off the rails. I think Wyatt is a less likable character all around than Dolores is. And at some points, it was hard to empathize with Walter White, the same as it kind of feels right now for Dolores. Two, do you foresee a robot civil war between Dolores and Maeve? I do, and I think it's going to be one of the most interesting parts of this entire show. And question three, I kind of root for the man in black. How do you feel about that character? I feel like he's basically the protagonist now. And, like, he is... William is trying to rectify his mistakes. He realizes that this is kind of all his fault. Although every now and again you see glimpses of the old William, the power-hungry William, the... Ruthless William killing hosts who don't deserve it, William. But oddly enough, other than Maeve and Hector, the man in black is the guy I'm rooting for the most right now. A guy whom, during watching the pilot, you absolutely hated. And now, because he feels like he's kind of on the right side of history all of a sudden, you want him to succeed. It's a weird feeling. I I tried to do a lot of mental gymnastics in season one to find a way in which the man in black isn't a rapacious psychopath, but uh, I, I had to concede in the end that he's a rapist and a crazy man. Yeah, the, the actions he's trying to take now, trying to actually rectify his past, trying to erase whatever is in the Valley of the Great Beyond, whatever the secret weapon that Delos has... It does not make up for all the awful things he's ever done. And I don't know if he knows that or not. And I think Ford has is, is been trying to tell him that the whole time. Like, you might get to the end of this and still not like yourself, buddy. Come to terms with that. So, yeah, I want to hear your insane Ghost Nation theory, which I'm probably going to totally agree with. <laughs> so, it is pretty commonplace on Reddit right now anytime the ghost nation is brought up almost everyone is on board for elsie is hap- is helping in some way that's the reason they tried to take out ashley stubbs and helped him and he knows more or something different than everyone else does on that beach when he sees bernie for because of it which is why he's a bit more empathetic than mailing or carl strand is that elsie told him something specific 
that maybe the Ghost Nation is who stopped or saved Elsie in that theater in which Bernard was trying to choke her in or something to the, someone saved her because she has to be alive somehow and figured out a way to get the ghost nation to be independent enough not to get stopped by Maeve's superpowers that seem to work on everybody else. But also the question is, did Elsie change them to be these white knights, these, these white hats, or have they always had a pension for saving the human beings because they revere them as gods, they revere them as healers, and they revere them as the people who, you know, it's their religion. The people in the spacesuits are are the gods, and they're the ones who bring life and take life away. So is the Ghost Nation just trying to collect humans because that's their purpose? Their their purpose is to help human beings because they, they want to. So if the Ghost Nation are Elsie's faction... I think then we finally have, like, a good faction. We've got the evil Delos executives and their terrible machinations. We've got Dolores and her world conquest. I would say Maeve is really doing her own thing. She's not really a faction so much as she is, like, what, like a a team, a party. And then we've got the Ghost Nation head by Elsie, and maybe she actually has, like, pure intentions, and she's trying to rescue her friends in the park, basically. We are three episodes in. We have not seen Elsie yet. We have whispers of her in the background. My question is, how many episodes are they going to wait until we get an answer on that? What do you think? Yeah, maybe she's going to show up at the very end of episode 10. Like, haha, I was here the whole time. But wouldn't that feel cheap? Yeah, especially uh, for the payday they're probably going to give her. It's, uh, it's an easy roll. It becomes a cameo. You were main stage for a season, and now you're just like a scientist in the wind. But I'm excited for the next episode. I'm hoping we're going to see more Grace and then finally some Shogun World. And someone on Twitter brought up that, you know, there's a bunch of parks now that we don't, you said they're not taking reservations. We don't know what they are. George R. R. Martin. Wanted a Song of Ice and Fire, Game of Thrones world. They could make it happen. They sure can. It would probably come out before the winds of winter, to be fair. I think it's just uh, like, how insane would it be <laughs> if, like, you know, the security team chases Dolores uh, and they've got her pinned down and they're about to fill her full of holes when fucking White Walker hosts just walk out of the darkness and freeze them and kill them. It honestly makes sense. The Delos security team is so bad at their jobs, it stands to reason that they would come out of the nowhere and they'd be like, yeah, we didn't even look at the cameras the past year. We had no idea that the Night King was even here. Del- yeah, The Night King and Dolores had a meeting and he taught her how to resurrect people. It's been going very well to the the crossover episode of, of them learning from each other. Oh, man. Oh man, wait, uh, there there are grace theories too, man. The who is grace per per like maybe one of the best intros this show has ever had. And so who is grace? So she could be the man in black's daughter. She could be Emily. She uh, in trying to break into Westworld through the Raj. That's why she knows the park. That's why she's been around. That's why she has a map with the symbol on it that Bernie has also seen within the encrypted file that Peter has. And maybe she's trying to go to the same place that her father is and figure out, you know, what made her mother's life so bad that she killed herself and and what she's been paying for her entire life. That's the prevailing theory. Other people really like that she was Teresa from the past, but it it kind of feels like this is a timeline with the Bengal tiger that we saw from the two weeks ahead of time and the Bengals on the side of the beach. She was, uh, you know, smoking her cigarette a lot like Teresa was, but that could have just been a red herring. The other theory is that she is an HR representative from Delos. She knows that they are basically recording her at all times, so she doesn't want to do anything fishy with a robot who's going to take her DNA from her and that she's a seasoned guest and we just don't know more about her. And I think those are the two. There's probably one more. Who do you think she is? 
I bet she's Dolores's secret daughter all grown up. Oh, wow. Yeah, that would be a curveball. She could be she could also be Logan's daughter. She which is is, is yeah, one that's oh, a little Oh, that would out be there. nuts. Yeah. Yeah, it would actually be that one if that if that actually happened it would be pretty neat. I I like that one a lot. All right, so next episode is entitled The Riddle of the Sphinx, and it's directed by Lisa Joy. Oh, that is a name that gives me no information, and a another name, Lisa Joy, on the directing role, that gives me hope. All right, guys, so join us next week. Send us your thoughts, your comments, your theories, your criticisms to at Westworld Ryan so we can discuss them on the show. If you've got a long form something to say, email it to me, thewestworldpodcast at gmail.com so we can discuss it on the show. If you got nude photos, send them to Ryan's Snapchat. Whoa, 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 whoa. Don't, don't do that. Do not do that. Hold on, I'm looking up the Riddle of the Sphinx really quick to see if I can find something real quick. Um, so the Riddle of the Sphinx, Ryan, um, I'll tell it to you right now. Oh, man. Ryan, this is, Ed- the, this is the Riddle of the Sphinx. Listen, Educate listen. me. So, uh, what walks on four legs in the morning, two legs in the afternoon, and three legs at twilight? Is it the Sphinx? No. Aww. <laughs> that would be a little too easy. Yeah, I thought they said it in the name. James, what's the answer, James? Humans. Because at, at the beginning of our lives, we're crawling on fours, and then we walk on two legs, and then when we're old, the twilight of our lives, we walk with a cane, three legs. Oh. Kind of like representing that picture of primates to human beings evolving over time. And inferring that we die and robots don't. That's fun. Oh, but now in just thinking about how that's the riddle of the Sphinx and that's the title of the episode and then Teddy was making those comments like, you're just children. Maybe it's all connected. (laughs) It all comes together. It's like the writers of the show are purposely trying to create an intertwining narrative. Nah, they're just making it up as they go along. (laughs) They just throw darts at cards on the wall and they go up to it and they're like hmm another Bernardold huh well put a bunch of doors in front of them see how it goes <laughs> alright then we'll see you here next week for the recap and review of episode 4 I'm James and I'm Ryan and this is the Westworld Podcast